Hello, and welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help guide and grow you in your walk with the Lord by providing an in-depth study of God's Word. So please grab your Bibles and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with this week's message. Father, thank you, Lord, for this opportunity to come together tonight and study a little bit about um, other people and how to deal with them and then also about current events that we have to look at as well. So uh, we ask for wisdom, we ask for uh, insight into ourselves, and so we can gain an understanding of dealing with uh, the world. We pray now in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're um, now looking on the fourth level in theology, which is dealing with others. And we looked at uh, understanding God, reality, ourselves, and now it's about understanding others. And uh, this is a big one that gets everybody. And I wish I, wish I was taught uh, a lot of the things I've learned from the Bible when I was young, because uh, I would have made a lot of different decisions about my different relationships with friends and family and, and all kinds of different things I would have done differently had I known what I know now. And like I said before, I'll quote the line from The Natural, you live two lives, the one you learn with and the one you live with afterwards. And um, that's kind of a thing I've seen now in my life. So we, 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 last week I looked at um, when people sin against us, it, our connection process was arrested. We talked about that. And then we, point number two is people didn't respect our boundaries as a person, and we talked about that. So if you want to go back, you can listen to that. A more in-depth uh, discussion of all of this, I, I probably get the book Safe People. I think Cloud and Townsend probably does the best job of drilling down pretty deep on this stuff. But I, I'm taking the, the, some, of these, the, some of their thoughts and I'm, I'm weaving them into a little bit more um, biblical ideas as well. So if you want to go a deep dive, that's a good, pretty good book to look at. Most of Townsend uh, and most of uh, uh, Townsend and... Uh, Cloud, uh, their resources are phenomenal. They're great. You guys, I recommend, highly recommend those uh, in the area of counseling. Anyway, um, <clears throat> a third point is is this that happens from us uh, for for to us from other people is that we were not seen completely as the Bible portrays us as being made in the image of God. Number one, but inherently sinful. And, it's, it, it, and I don't blame parents, I don't blame your parents or anyone that, like this, but since I now am responsible for this information, um, I must see other people like this. I must see people as made in the image of God and not subhumans, uh, right? And then I, but I have to understand too and balance that out that they're inherently sinful and man left to himself without any guardrails, without any accountability, will always slide down to sin because of the sin nature. But you have to balance both out. If you do not balance both out, you will not see people holistically uh, as from, in terms of a Bible uh, perspective. And what I mean by that is you have to see both aspects and balance that. So you can be like a, 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 Calvin, a Calvinist that has worm theology and, um, and sees man as a, a sinful creature, and they tend to ignore being made in the image of God for some reason. And that image of God, no doubt, is marred. There's no doubt about that. But the image of God gives the human dignity, value, and respect. And you can't ever take that away from a human. 
And so you have to balance that out versus like the Arminians as, you know, they're, they're great and God's gift to the planet and, and, uh, and really don't emphasize how much that sin nature has affected them many times because um, they can lose their salvation by their works. And, and if you could lose your salvation by your works, that means you gain your salvation by your works in a lot of ways. And so it, it, it's a kind of a convoluted system, but it, what you start realizing, and even in soteriology, is that Arminianism or Calvinism doesn't balance the, the biblical view of human beings out properly. They side one to the other too much and won't bring that perspective in properly. Anyway, we're incredibly gifted as human beings, but we're extremely prideful. So you have all these gifts given to you, but the problem is you taint them because of your pride and, and my pride, and we distort them and mess them up. We're capable of doing immense good to others, uh, not, being, not earning salvation by good works, but I'm talking about just being human to other people you have that ability uh, that's in your soul because God's law is written on your heart. You have that ability to be good, uh, relatively speaking, but you're also capable of just total wickedness and evil at the same time. And both of them have to be understood when you look at someone holistically. And that we possess good qualities, and then we possess very bad qualities, especially in our character development. So what does that mean then? So if I can balance out how the Bible portrays human beings, then I can understand them and know how to deal with them. So this prevents me from doing an all or nothing with them. We call this splitting reality. And what happens to sometimes with people is you can uh, broad brush them or split reality and say someone's all bad or someone's all good. Now there are extreme cases like that, like Hitler's all bad, okay? Guys like him are all bad, and there's examples of that. But most people, generally speaking, that you're dealing with have good traits, bad traits. They're inherently sinful. They'll always gravitate to sin, but they're made in the image of God. That way of understanding that allows you to know when to give grace and when to give uh, truth and when to um, exact justice and when to give mercy. And if you don't know the balancing act of how to see people, you will not know how to give mercy, grace, justice, righteousness, and all that. So it affects you. It affects how you deal with people in that way. Okay, the problem is people didn't deal with you that way. Okay? That's what we got to learn, but they didn't deal with you this way. So what did they do? Well, the people that were raising us, the teachers or the coaches, whatever we had in our lives as authority figures, and quite frankly, the authority figure is always going to center back on the family typically, is the fact that you had somebody in your life, maybe someone in your life, that uh, expected perfectionism from you, and uh, they, didn't, they didn't want you to have any issues, okay? So you had to give this uh, and f this front that you were, you were doing everything right, you're straight A's, you're this, you're that, and, and there's no problems. But underneath it all, um, where, where we see as human beings, we have flaws. But the parents or authority figures never wanted to see the flaws, and they ignored the flaws and only saw perfection in the person. Now, a classic case in point in raising kids is when one child is favorite. And the funny thing is the parents can't see it, that are raising the child, but everyone else around them can. 
So you have this in favoritism. So did you grow up in a family that had favorites? Where dad had his favorite, mom had her favorite, or whatever. You're not supposed to do that, obviously. The biblical prescription is against that because God has no partiality, obviously. And, and so God says, you know, I don't favor the poor. That's one of the things about the social justice warriors that God says, I don't favor the poor over anyone else. Everyone's treated the same. Well, the way you raise your family is supposed to be like that. Well, it's not, obviously. And people have major gaps and blindness in their game, and they will have their golden child, and they will put all their efforts and all their energy and all their money into the golden child and leave everyone else out. And if you were not the golden child, then you were the ones left out. That's going to cause issues. If you were the golden child, you also will have issues. Okay? Just want to put that out there. If you were the golden child, you have pride issues that need to be knocked down. If you're not the golden child and you're the, the redheaded stepson, or so to speak, or whatever, then you deal with insecurity, typically speaking. So you basically have to understand, where did I come from? Did I come from being the, the golden child? Did I come from the other one? Uh, other side. And those are the issues you will have to deal with based on how someone treated you. Now, if you don't correct this in your life, you will continue to act out the role. Okay? And it's amazing how people will act out the role. And you can hear them at funerals, and they, I, I hear it all the time. Oh, well, mom always said you were the favorite, or dad always said you were the favorite. That's deadly, man. And they don't, they don't even realize what they're saying. If you really see that practiced in real life in a family, it's horrible to watch. I mean, you can see it portrayed in the Bible and what they did with Joseph, right? The favoritism of Jacob with Joseph was, was caused almost them to kill him. That's how bad the favoritism is. The amount of resentment that comes to people because someone was treated as the favorite is immense. It destroys the relationship. And sometimes it never can be fixed. It's really, really bad. But again, someone was perfect and they can't do any wrong and mom and dad never saw that they could do any wrong. But then guess what? There's this undercurrent that everyone else knows they are doing wrong just because they're human beings. They, all, they do have flaws and there are the flaws that you're ignoring to see. And, and what happens is uh, the, the parents create a fantasy world about the child. Now, you know, it's, I remember, and I always use this illustration as an example. I was, my kids were little, man. I mean, they must have been like eight and nine years old, and we're playing ball. And you get around these crazy parents, man. And I, I mean, I, honestly, dude, I, I'm so glad I'm out of it. I'm sick and tired of the, the, the I don't know, what, what are they? The parents that, that, that live through their kids. Yeah, they just lived through the kids. Anyway, the, I remember the old boy coming up to me. The old boy coming up to me, and I was, uh, my kids are eight and nine or whatever, and his kid was 10. Uh, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, he, he's, he, he uh, pitched with uh, uh, some pro guy, I want to know, and he goes, oh, yeah, he's going to be the next Dodger. He's going to make it to Dodger Stadium. And I'm like, dude, are you, are you for real, man? Are you an idiot? He's, he's more likely to get struck by lightning than make it to the major leagues. And this, the simple unreality of their kid was not, it was not even the, in, on a 11 playing field. It's like, oh my gosh, you know where that kid's at today? 
He's in Juco. That's it. That's as far as he went. Yeah, I thought he was supposed to be the next Dodger. I mean, the parent literally told me this. And, dude, it wasn't like a joke or I hope. or and It's like, oh, yeah. And just la-la land, man. And, and that's what happens to somebody because they, they got favoritism and they expect perfectionism and he's going to go all the way. And I, I think the parents of, of athletes today are the worst people to be around. They're awful. They're awful. I cannot stand them anymore. Uh, I'm so glad I'm out of it. I know Bill and a lot of other people, we've, we've related that. And you're like, these, parent, these parents of these kids are just, they're out of their minds. But you know what? It's perfectionism. And they're living their, their, their lives through their kids through perfectionism. Their kid has, has to be perfect. And it never can happen because you don't see the, per, the... The kid's not given a fair shot of seeing holistically how he is. The kid has flaws. The kid has character issues and those kinds of things. Furthermore, idealization. People will deny their flaws. So if you had a, 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 a parents that denied your flaws, it's, it's the same thing with a perfectionist. They expected perfection, but then they looked at you and like, he has no flaws, he's perfect. And that, that's absolute nonsense uh, to have that kind of... Uh, thing put on a kid that's where we get the concept of wounded narcissists with the millennials right that so the 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 millennial parents raised him in in this this idealistic idealistic issue that the kid has no flaws and therefore should be rewarded for every time they 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 scratch their name on a paper or whatever it might be right oh my gosh he wrote his name let's let's put it on the hall and 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 we're going to bronze that because he wrote his name. And it's like, oh, my gosh, what's wrong with you? It's called idealization. And they do this to kids. This is why they write books on this stuff. And it's like, I'm not making this stuff up. It's called the cult of the child. When you ask, uh, I remember, um, I think I heard Dennis Prager talk about this, about his dad. He would bring him on the show, and he asked his dad as every other year or something like that. He would ask his dad, hey, um, um, dad, uh, it's your birthday today. And his dad was like 80-something, 90-something. He lived to be 90-something years old. And he would say, uh, what's different from your generation versus ours today? Can you imagine? And he would do it every couple of years, he said, so his dad wouldn't remember what he said. So he goes consistently Without a doubt, even though my dad didn't, he, he, he just went from that interview to the next and didn't remember what he said. Every time he was asked that question, he said, the difference is that the kids rule the homes today. And it's true. And it's because of this. Everything's done for the kids. Everything. They're like kings, man. And, and, and the mom and dad are like slaves to this master kid, especially if it's a favorite kid. And, and it's like, what are you doing? Are you out of your mind? And, and this is the, the thing what's created the narcissism in the millennials and has also created the narcissism in the Gen Zs because they're told they're wonder kinds, but they've never done anything. Because mom and, mom and dad idealize them so much that they never talk about their character development. So we have, well, okay, then like I've said, you know, what about the woundedness? The woundedness is when they get into reality, the reality says, you're not as good as you think. 
So when you think you're going to be a Dodger and you end up in a junior college, what does that tell you about your view of reality as a parent? You're way off. I mean way off. How did you miss that one? Because your, your idealization, that's why. Shaming. Did you grow up with someone shamed you? I'm not, I'm not talking about, you know, uh, constructive criticism, but shamed you. Um, you had negative qualities, and they just harped on them constantly and shamed you for these negative qualities. Instead of saying, well, let's work through that, I see a, a character flaw in this, and let's work on this because it's going to be a gap in your game later on, it was just pounded on, and the, the person was never taught how to get out of the character flaw. They were just criticized re relentlessly on the negative. So you can see kind of the polar opposite. So you go from perfection of the child, idealization of the child, to now we're, we're just totally critical of any bad move that child makes. So as you can see, um, if that was you, if you made one mistake, man, you're condemned. So what you did growing up is you perhaps made, became a peacemaker to make everyone happy. You tiptoed around uh, on eggshells just to make sure you didn't do something uh, uh, wrong to be condemned. And you played it safe. You played it safe. And you, that's basically you took no risks because you were afraid to be condemned. And people who don't make, take risks uh, don't do well in the area of faith either because it affects their relationship and how they deal with God. Because you're going to view God through your parents. And if you had a condemning parent that always was harping on you, that's how you're going to be with your relationship with God. And you will end up being the guy in the parable of the talents that was afraid that he knew his master was harsh and he buried his talent because he's afraid to take risk. And you can see this in how people live their life. They will play it safe on everything. They won't take financial risks. Sometimes that's required. They won't venture out and start a company. They won't do that. They won't try anything new. Um, and it's, it's a sad way of living. It really is because there's no risk involved in their life. And there's no entrepreneurship. And then when you move that, that relationship over to God... Forget it, man. They will play it safe with God the whole time. They'll get saved and everything, but if God really asks them to step out on their faith, they won't do it. In fact, they'll actually get very hostile towards you or towards God, even asking them or attempting to, to, to live that way because they've never experienced what that's like to live in faith. They're saved by faith, but they don't live by faith. And uh, it's because someone was always critical of them making mistakes. I, again, I hate to always use sports analogy, but that's how my mind thinks. Um, the psychology of playing sports at the higher level, it's not a matter of skill. It's a mental game at that point. And, um, I'm, you know, I'm watching my son now playing college ball, and I'm watching him play the mental game, and I'm teaching him how to play the mental game because all the, all the mechanics are over. We're done with the mechanics. We're past that stage. It's all up here now. So every, my, every conversation I'm having is up here in, uh, in the mind. And, you know, one of the things that people do is they get nervous before they, get, they play. And sometimes they get so nervous they'll throw up. Or, and you don't, you don't know that, but they do. They get extremely nervous before they go out and then play. And uh, a lot of that is tripped, uh, tripped up by anxiety, fear of failure, uh, fear of you know, being pulled, stuff like that. And uh, 
I remember we, we playing against uh, Navy. We uh, they were in our league, and uh, uh, we were, were. They called the coach Captain Hook, uh, and there was a reason why. And and what happened is every time a kid made a mistake or struck out or an error, the coach pulled them. And so the kids, you could tell, are on the team. We're all playing, all playing scared, afraid to make a mistake. Dude, if you play any sport, any sport, I don't care what it is, afraid to make a mistake, you're doomed. It will happen. That ball will go right through your legs. And so I'm, I'm teaching my, my older son how to play aggressive and not think that in those terms. I'm, I'm changing his mindset. But a lot of it has to do with a coach and a lot of these coaches don't know what they're doing in the middle game of baseball. So when, they, when they're coaching kids, they think they're coaching by yelling at them and criticizing them instead of doing the constructive criticism. Instead of telling a kid, hey, the next time, the reason that ball went through your legs is because you popped up. You just got to leave your mitt down there. Just keep it down there. It'll come in there and keep your eye on it. and It'll come. Instead of, you're the worst guy I've ever seen. I can't believe you're even playing at this level. How did you get on this team? You're an idiot. You know, that kind of stuff. You ever been around coaches like that? Yeah, okay. That kind of coach destroys the, the, the child or the kid or the young athlete because they're not constructively criticized. Uh, you know, you take that kid aside after the, the inning and you say, hey, man, this is what you got to do. It's your arms got to go right here or whatever, or your, your bat head is laid into the zone and you're dragging the bat through the zone. You don't say, I can't believe you swing like that. You're an idiot. Don't, you'll never be, amount to anything. You'll always be a loser. You see the difference versus saying your bat head is dragging through the zone, right? That's different. That's a mechanical thing versus attacking the person's character. Okay, dads are the worst of this. Okay, because dads don't know how to really coach their kids. They don't know how to coach it. And so you get the daddy ball coach that's out there and he's criticizing the kids. And so the number one complaint of all kids is their dads are too critical of them. And what they mean by that is it's not the correction for the right way of doing things. It's the character attack and the character assassination on the child. That's the problem. And so they grow up with a critical parent. And so that kid... That person grows into an adult that's afraid, okay? So that's the, the shaming aspect, but then let's talk about splitting, and this might happen. So like with the golden child, they're all good, and there's no bad. With the, with the uh, unfavorite child, um, they're all bad or whatever, and they don't amount to anything. So people who split reality, it's called splitting, but it's called splitting reality in, the, in, in counseling terms is that um, you start blanketing things. You blanket people, you blanket other people, and you can't do that. There are exceptions to the rule, right? There are exceptions to the rule where you can blanket somebody, like a Hitler and Stalin and uh, Klaus Schwab and you know, those kinds of people. You can blanket them because, generally speaking, 100% of the time, they're evil. They're just evil. And, uh, but most people are not in that category. So was this done to you? Were you all good or were you all bad? That's an improper biblical view of you. So either you're going to fight pride or you're going to fight worm theology. It's one of the two. And you have to figure out which one it was so you can get over that. You were never told you were made in the image of God. You're never been told that you were valuable or, or, you know, or this one, you were told you're too valuable. 
You can't make mistakes. You're perfect. You walk on water. I can't see any flaws in you. You see how both extremes mess up the person? So it's up to the person to figure that out, what happened to me, and then get a biblical view about themselves. And you bust out of that. Finally, you break free. Four, you were not allowed to be an adult. It's a killer for most people. Now, what it ends up happening, and you can see this in, in childhood development and the way parents parent, um, the, the way a parent should parent, obviously, is this inverted triangle. So at you know, early stages of, of infancy and toddlerhood, there's very, there's very little room for uh, you know, going outside the lines because it's dangerous. You cross the street as a toddler, it's dangerous, right? So you're, you, you restrict a child's abilities uh, just to, to, to have safety, but as they get older, you give them this inverted triangle and you give them more space and you more flexibility and more room to grow, okay? And you, that's what should be naturally occurring is this inverted triangle of freedom and responsibility, okay? If the child doesn't hold to the responsibility, then you narrow it back down, right? So you, it's a give and play. It's always doing this thing as it goes up, and you're giving more freedom, less freedom, more freedom based on how old the child's getting. The problem with parents, especially overprotective parents or perfectionist parents, is that here's where, here they, here's where they were at five, here's where they were at 18. And they think that's being smart. They, they think that kind of parenting has prepared them for the world. It's totally wrong. It's going to be dangerous for the child. Why? If I'm trained to be a five-year-old at 18, and then I'm thrust into reality, what happens? You ain't ready for it. It will tear you limb to limb because you have the mindset of a five-year-old in your, your responsibility, in your, your give-and-take in relationships. So, Parents make the fatal flaw, and it's typically from parents that had a very wild past, that I'm going to nail this down. This is never going to happen to my kid again, or, or sorry, to, 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 to my family, when, with, what happened to me. And so I will constrict the child and put them in a bubble until they're old. And what ends up happening is the minute they let that dog off the leash, that, that dog runs. He's finally off the leash, and he's gone because that's a prison. And not giving proper freedom to the proper age causes rebellion, especially if it's rules without relationship. If you give a bunch of rules to a kid without relationship, kiss them goodbye. That's, that's, that's a fact, man. Uh, and this is the problem with a lot of parents is they were putting rules on their kids, or maybe you had this, all a bunch of rules, but you had no relationships with anybody. Your dad made rules, your mom made rules, but they didn't really have a relationship with you. So guess what? How are you going to respond? Well, I don't want to follow anyone that gives me rules but won't, won't care about me, doesn't love me. What, how did Jesus come in grace and truth? What does grace mean? Relationship first, then truth. So we know at the, that, at the outset that God approaches us first relationally and then with truth. It's, you can't get out of that order. And so, he, he, so when he does that, and he gives the law to Israel, 
he first rescues them out of Egypt. He didn't give them the law in Egypt, right? He rescues them, gets them through Egypt, gets them through the Red Sea, gets them out into the wilderness, feeds them, takes care of them, and then introduces the law. Afterwards, grace, then truth. It's the same pattern. So if a parent will not give grace, then forget about giving truth. It ain't going to work. You're, doing, you're going the opposite of the way Jesus would do in your parenting. Now, no one's perfect on this. Uh, I'm not, um, because some days you're over here, some days you're over here, some days you're too hard, some days you're too soft. And it's just a balancing act, man. And uh, you go back and forth, you go back and forth. But at least you're trying to balance, okay? At least you're trying to balance it. But if you're a parent and you're not trying to balance the grace and truth, you're going to side one way or the other. You side too much here on, tr- uh, on, on over-controlling the child, you're going to cause rebellion. But if you're too laissez-faire with the child, you'll also cause rebellion too. So no, no matter which way you play this one, at the extremes is rebellion. One is you're over-controlling me. The other one is you're, you under-controlled me. That's it. And so you have to balance the two out. So this is what starts happening. People were treated as if they're children, okay? Now, you might be an adult right now, but around your parents, you're like a child. You ever feel that way? Or do you ever feel like you're a child in uh, one of your siblings? Like, man, when I'm around my other brother or this and that, I feel like a kid again, man. And I'm a 65-year-old man. But they, they feel that way when they're around their siblings. It's weird. But it's because the way they grew up, they were never tr- treated as, as adults. They were always treated as kids. And, the, and the, the adult child could have a you know, family and grandkids, and they're still treated as a child by their parents. Don't, they're not listened to, they're not heard, or anything like that. And that causes major problems, okay? Or people treated us as if we were parents is another problem. Now, this happened to a lot of latchkeys. A lot of latchkeys were not raised by their parents because they were latchkeys. They came home from school, and they did their own thing until mom and dad got home, okay? So, but they were treated as if they're parents at a very young age, okay? So in a lot of ways, these people had their childhood stolen from them, even though they probably wouldn't say that and the parents wouldn't say that, but a lot of ways they did. They lost their childhood because they had to grow up too fast, uh, way too fast. When you grow up too fast, the person becomes way over-responsible, way over-responsible. And that becomes a burden later in life because they become responsible for everyone and everything. And they, they can't hardly take the stress of it all because every, all the weight's on their shoulders because it always has been. It's always on their shoulder because their goofy sister can't do anything. Their goofy brother can't do anything. So, the family always looks to them for responsibility to have their act together. And these people are carrying an unamount, unbelievable amount of responsibility they shouldn't be carrying. But it comes from childhood. Parents used their kids to be the other spouse. You want to know what the name of it for is it? Emotional incest. There's plenty of it. So the parent is dis- detached from the other parent. So they use the child 
to weigh leverage on to be the other adult in the room. And they lean on that child to be the other adult. And so they forget about the other uh, parent and they just focus in on them too. It's a total incest thing. There's no doubt about that. Um, and it's incest in the fact that the other parent should be involved. But since they're not, then the child is used as a surrogate parent. And that child sometimes has to raise the other kids in the home. Um, I saw that growing up where uh, my friends had to babysit the kids, the other kids all the time, all the time, and never had any free time to explore and get out and go have some fun because they were always babysitting for the parent who decided to check out. And so if you were raised this way, um, you go into life not looking forward to it because life represents more responsibility to you. And quite frankly, me telling you about rewards doesn't impress you at all. Because you're like, I want to get done with this life because I'm tired of being responsible. And you're telling me I'm going into the kingdom, going to be more responsible. I don't want that. You're out of your mind, Brandon. You see how that works? They're, they're de-incentivized for rewards because they don't want more responsibility. They've had too many. Yeah, question. Uh, yeah, we got an online question. Do you recommend a good parenting book? Actually, no. I, I haven't found anyone. Um, I, what I would recommend is that you, you uh, probably a good book that would learn about parenting is you learn about yourself and you need to do it through books like uh, with Cloud and Townsend because the way you're going to be a good parent is you fix you. It's not about the kid. It's about fixing you. The problem with the people's parenting is because of this, all this junk that they grew up in. So my recommendation is I don't have any parenting recommendations. I mean, you could do boundaries with, with, with children, and that's a Cloud and Townsend thing, or boundaries with teens and stuff like that. But you know what you'll learn in those books? You'll learn about you and not your kid. And that's what it's about. It's about you and raising your kids on your issues and your, your problems and creating monsters that you don't want, right? I mean, they say, I, I, you know, I've heard Jordan Peterson say this. He's not a Christian or anything, but he did say something that, that was pretty good, and I... I kind of agree with it. Don't raise your kids to where you don't like them. Yeah, I, I would think that's a good thing. Don't raise your kids to where you don't like them as adults. Yikes. Okay, but he's right. He's right in a lot of ways. I mean, you, you, you get the product that you get out of raising them, and you're like, oh, my gosh, I don't even want to be around this kid. It's awful. You know, and you, you think, oh. That's what happens, right? So I would recommend uh, probably uh, boundaries with children, boundaries with teens, boundaries in marriage is good, stuff like that. Uh, then you had the control freak parent. <clears throat> you might have been raised by one of these, uh, and these are the people that always want to be in charge of things. They want to be in charge of your life. Uh, they actually tell you what your goals are. They tell you what you're going to do, what you're going to be. They tell you what you're going to eat. They tell you what you're, what, everything, everything, because they're over-controlling. These are the people that clean their house three times a day. Um, these are the people that have extensive lists that they will accomplish by the end of the day, and if not, they're doomed for them. Um, they will work till two or three in the morning to get the list done. And everything has to be perfect because they are typically perfectionists. Controllers are perfectionists. You know that, right? Controllers are perfectionists. And they, they, um, they make, if, if they're not 
in check, they make everyone's life a living nightmare. Okay? But we need sometimes people who are, are willing to be in control, and we do need people that um, take charge, but they have to be in check. An over-controller that's not in check will just, just bulldoze everybody, bulldoze the kids. So were you, control, were you raised by a control freak? Um, the other one is people who attacked us when we challenged their thinking, values, and, or opinions. Could you, could you challenge how your mom and dad were thinking? Now, I'm not talking like a punk 12-year-old, right? I'm not talking about that, you know, because most 12-year-olds, they don't even know what they're talking about. They are stupid. And you just say, that's the stupidest comment I've ever heard. Get out of here with that. We're not talking about that. We're talking about they get older, and they're starting to understand life a little bit better, and they understand theology, and they understand the world better. And then they start, they uh, bring up good questions and good challenges that are legitimate, not stupid things, right? But... um, if you did bring those up, how were you treated? And that will say a lot. Um, were you attacked when you challenged? Hey, mom, that's crazy thinking like that. That's not what so-and-so did. You're seeing this totally wrong. Now, a kid could see this maybe at you know, 16, 17, 18 maybe and, uh, and, and, and further. And that's kind of the age I'm talking about when the kid starts becoming aware and, 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 and they first have to get out of the insanity years of the teenage years, right? They get out of that. But then they get the sanity back, and then they start seeing reality as it is. Have you ever had that experience? And it's like, yeah, I know. You see that? That's what we've been putting up for the last 30 years. And they're like, oh, wow. You ever had that experience when your kids wake up? Oh, and they're like... Yeah, I, I never saw that before. I said, yep, yep, that's what we've been dealing with. And so, um, anyway, it's, it's enlightening to have that moment when they finally recognize, like, oh, my gosh, that person's a narcissist, or, yeah, I know. <laughs> that's why we don't be around them. We're not around them a lot. Yes, yes. Okay, so those things affect you. Now, here's the thing. All those things affect you. Your job is to work on them to get them out of your life. It's not the people, but the... But the, 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 the issues that it caused you, right? And so you can deal with people holistically in a biblical way. Okay. So at some point, you're going to deal with one of these, these types of people. Um, and they're part of the church body. They're part of the culture. They're part of society. They're people that you go to school with. They're people you work with. They're everywhere. You're not going to get around, uh, away from these types of people. Your job as a Christian is to know how to spot them, identify the issue, and know how to properly deal with them in a relationship. And some, you might not be able to have a relationship, but your job is to identify and make sure that you uh, can uh, properly respond to that personality type, that character flaw, or whatnot. The first person you're going to have to deal with is the person who has arrived. Okay, this kind of person spiritually doesn't need any more spiritual help. I've had actually people come to me on Wednesday nights and tell me that the, the very sins I talk about, that they're past them all. They don't have any problems. No joke. Yeah, yeah, they tell me that they're, they're past everything. They've, they've, they, don't, they don't have any problem anymore. Then what are you doing here? That's what I want to say. What are you doing here? You've you've reached the point because you're past the Apostle Paul, right? 
and what did what Paul say? Not have I attained? You know, I press on. No, no, this guy already figured out Paul. He's done. Well, then go home. We're, just put your white robe and wait for the rapture because you've made it. I mean, what the heck is someone thinking that they've, they've achieved perfection? Wow, that's like, you're not thinking straight. Maybe there's some mental illness or something. But anyway, you, you have people that think they've arrived. Now, they'll admit, oh, I'm a sinner, but they really don't because they, they, they think they don't sin. They really don't. They don't think they, they do anything wrong. And they don't know that even their own attitudes are wrong about it. Um, this kind of person is very difficult to deal with. When they, it's, it's very hard to have a relationship with somebody that spiritually thinks they have arrived. Now, the way, the way you'll know, I guess the telltale sign, is they're always looking down on you with their noses. They always have an uppity attitude around you spiritually. And they always brag about what they do. I can't stand it. I'm at this point now in my, my ministry is I can't stand when people brag to me what they do because I know what they're doing. They're showboating. And it's like, if you're a true believer and you're being obedient, you're not supposed to tell me what you're doing. You're not even supposed to tell me what you give. You don't brag about what you do. So when you see somebody that brags about what they do, is they're, they're, they're fronting a lack of spirituality and pretending to be spiritual. Another way to, to, that you may not be able to see this is they'll be involved in a lot of ministry work. They'll do a lot of things. They really will, and they're good workers. But deep down inside, on a personal level, um, they're not working on their character. There's no character development. There's no spiritual development. They're just working. And they hide their, spirit, their lack of spirituality by how much they work. They're easy to spot. I told one guy a long time ago, it was 20 years ago, I said, you know, the thing is, man, you're the busiest guy in this church. I go, you're busier than the pastors. I said, you're spending 17 plates in here. I said, you don't miss any time the doors are open in this church. I said, I'm trying to, to leave and you're trying to come and stay longer than we are. I said, what do you think that's all about? I don't know, I just like serving. I said, I'll tell you what it's about. It's about you not wanting to deal with the real issue, is it? Because all the stuff that you run around and do and this and you're doing that and you're doing that is just a cover-up for really a lack of spirituality in your life, a lack of growth, a lack of maturity. And he goes, well, no one's ever talked to me that way. I said, well, you asked, I'm going to tell you. And that's your real problem. You think you can hide it. I go, the spiritually mature can see it. You don't have what it takes because you don't do any spiritual development. And look, don't get me wrong. Serving is great. It's a sign of spirituality. It is. But if all that's what the person does, and they really don't ever do any work, and, and the thing is, you would see they can't change. They have the same attitude as they had 20 years ago, right? There's no changing involved. But yet, they're, they're spiritually busy. Well, I know a story about that one. There was a situation where Jesus is sitting in the room, and Mary and Martha are in the same room with them. And Martha can't stop herself from busying around in the kitchen where Mary sits there and listens to the master teach. And she says, she, she, got, she rebukes the Lord. Remember that? Make her do something. Help, make her help me. She's given a command to Jesus to give her a command to do something. And, and she, he goes, no, I won't, because she's chosen the better thing. And what was the better thing? To listen. 
Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. If you're always a Martha and you're busy and you're, you're messing around all the time and you're never at the feet of the master listening, you're never going to grow. You can fake it, but people will know when they start asking you the hard questions and you can't give them the deep, deep answers spiritually, you were faking it. So my thing is, it's better to sit and absorb and get that under your belt, and then you go out and serve after you receive content. You receive content, and then you go out. If you're not getting any content, how can you give out? It'll be fake. Don't you think people will see through it? I guess not. Tears among the wheat. Tears among the wheat, you have to be able to spot. They're not always the easiest thing to see because a tear looks exactly like a believer, okay? The only reason, the way you can tell is at harvest time when a tear turns colors, okay? And a tear during harvest time turns like this grayish green, uh, like a pale green, and a wheat will turn a golden color, and wheat will bend over and bow when they have their full stalk, and a tear will shoot straight up in the air. And you'll only tell the difference at harvest time between the two. And, and this has been a hard one because sometimes you have to give that category, you have to give the category of a carnal believer, worldly believer, and all these other categories. But yes, there are fake ones among us. There are. And there always will be. You're not going to get away from that. And that's a truth and reality. And um, all I can tell you is give, it's a principle of the harvest, Okay. If you're like, I don't know, man, if they're a believer or not, or, or what. I mean, they could very well be a lot. You don't know. But um, watch the apostasy. I guess just watch the apostasy. Um, see what they do. See what they say. Uh, I mean, it, it's, it's, it's hard to imagine, you know, where, where Lot is like the mayor of Sodom, like we talked about on Sunday, and he's a believer. Um, it's, it's a hard one to spot, and I'm not, I'm not always sure, but they are. You have to still reserve that category that the person may not be real, um, along with the other categories, as long as you reserve the other categories of immature, worldly, carnal, Laodicea, stuff like that, which brings me to the, the other churches. Um, so it could be a tear but it could be one of the other churches. And uh, what are the hallmarks of the other churches to be aware of? Well, Ephesus, uh, well, Laodicea is the biggest one. I always talk about Laodicea, right? Um, they're the worldly church. They, they have too much money, they're too affluent, and they could care less. They could give a rip about what's going on in the world. They like their, their, their dynasty, they like their kingdom, and they're having fun in their kingdom, and they don't wanna let it go. That's why they don't wanna hear prophecy or anything like that, because they're having too good of a time. That's Laodicea. They're just indifferent, okay? They don't care. Um, then you have the carnal, obviously, that Paul talks about. Carnal means being controlled by their flesh. And so you could have believers that are simply being controlled by their flesh and get in all kinds of heinous sins. You have worldly believers, which are much like Laodiceans. They, they're like Lot. Then you have the Sardis believer that's dead, has a dead faith. Now, the Sardis believer is a believer, but his faith doesn't produce any works in his life. Um, they're saved in all, but nothing comes out of their life. And so James would say that they have a non-working faith. That's what 
Faith without, faith without works is dead is not refer, a reference to salvation. It is a reference of the kind of faith that believer has. You either have a faith that's alive or you have a faith that's dead. A faith that is alive will produce works. A faith that is dead is a believer that won't produce any works. And you have a lot of believers not doing that. So you have to be able to judge that. And then you deal with Ephesus. Ephesus believers have forsaken their first love. They don't make God the priority of their life. Um, and you use the Hebraic understanding of uh, first love, it's loyalty, loyal love. It's hesed, that, um, and it's a pecking order. They don't have Jesus at the top in their pecking order. It could be their spouse. It could be their kids. It could be their family. It could be their job. It could be their money, it could, whatever. And then Jesus down on the fourth and fifth, sixth rung or whatever. Um, so that's forsaking your first love. Pergamum, what's the problem with this Pergamum believer? A Pergamum believer... Um, is a compromiser with the world. They, they do a lot for their job and compromise in their job uh, or in their life in general just to get ahead. They're always trying to cheat the system. They always try to have some type of worldly advantage. And in order to get the worldly advantage they think is going to benefit them, they will cheat. They will cheat the system. And they'll say, well, you know, hey, this is what the system allows. There's a loophole in the system. Yeah, but it's cheating. I don't care, there's a loophole. Well, just because you can do it doesn't make it right. Right, it's the same thing, I can make the same argument. Well, it's legal in California to have an abortion. That doesn't make it right, even though it's legal, right? And so a lot of times I, have, I catch this with lawyer, Christian lawyers. And, and they're, they're trying to, I understand from their perspective what they're trying to do. They're looking for legal loopholes. But at the end, hey man, is this moral? Because that's the law we're going by. Not whether you can do it or not, or whether or not this is moral. And I've had some strange questions asked to me a lot of times about people doing things, funny business in their lives. And it's like, dude, I, I don't know if I would go there. I don't know. I go, because you might be crossing a line morally. You might legal be, legally be able to do it, but then you're crossing a line morally. Well, I don't think I, I, I should have to do this. I don't think, I don't think it's right for the city to, to, to require this before I do that. Okay, well then, what are you going to do? Well, I don't think that law is right. Okay, is it a moral law? Is it asking you to break a moral law? No, I just don't agree with that law. So I'm going to break it. And I said, well, good luck on that one because you're going to get caught. And lo and behold, they do get caught. And they get fined by the city. And they possibly could go to jail. So it's, it's weird that people uh, with the, with the uh, Pergamum mentality always looking for an, a worldly advantage and an edge to cheat the system. And look, hey, man, I know the system's rotten. I know that I don't like paying taxes just as much as you don't like paying taxes. But if you keep the, cheating the system, you're going to get caught. At some point, they're going to catch up to you, dude. And you're not going to run away from that. That's a bad witness at that point. Thyatira, what are Thyatira believers? Thyatira believers um, are basically idolaters religiously. Um, in, in church history, this was the Catholic Church, obviously, in the era dominated by the papacy. But <clears throat> if you put it on a local believer, um, uh, they have religious compromises in their theology. They, uh, they put other gods before God. They have their own idols. And it doesn't have to be an idol of money. It could be religious idols, actually. Um, the way they were raised, um, uh, you know, in, in the traditions they grew up. They can't, br they can't seem to break away like, 
Like when I broke away from Catholicism, there's a lot of people that got saved in Catholicism. They wouldn't break away from it. And it's like, dude, that, that system's corrupt, man. Don't you see it? It's totally corrupt. And so, like, for instance, so Thyatira is about the Catholic Church in church history. Um, and the reward is those who escape the Catholic Church. That's the overcomer in that passage is those who overcome the Catholic Church. Now, that's all of you here that have overcome the Catholic Church, but I can tell you this, a lot of people haven't. They've gotten saved, and they can't overcome it. They still stay in it. They still deal with it, and uh, they can't get past it, and it's a weird deal. And it's not just the, it's not just the Catholic Church. It's like, uh, you know, I've seen people come out of the Seventh-day Adventists, and they're all screwed up, and they won't let go of it. And so they're into annihilationism, and, and they're into don't believe in hell. And even though they got saved, they won't believe in these cardinal doctrines because they're hung up on this stuff. Or then they'll try to bring Mormonism into Christianity. It's weird. And so Thyatira is about overcoming religious idolatry and stop tolerating these idols, religious idols in your life. And that's one of the things that the believer has to overcome. Okay, so you can spot them. You'll see them. Okay? Then there's a Jezebel person. The Jezebel person must be spotted. You must know what the Jezebel person looks like. And it could be a male or female. I was talking to a friend of mine that just had a male version of a Jezebel in the church that he was formerly at. And this male version of a Jezebel did the same thing as female versions of the Jezebel spirit. Jezebel spirit is seen in the church of Thyatira. So it's not like I'm making this up. It's a hyper-charismatic thing. It's not. The, ch the churches have to deal with the spirit of Jezebel as Thyatira did. There will always be somebody that's introducing something, wanting to gain authority to introduce false doctrine and surrounding themselves with spiritual eunuchs. And last I was talking to this guy and he was saying, yeah, it happened. And we had a male version of this happen and they, they basically took control of a lot of things and authority inside the church. And the person was just a, a stinking children's director and they amassed all this authority and all this power under them while having... Uh, spiritual eunuchs surrounding them, protecting them, and de you know, destroyed the church, basically. He had to get out of there, and uh, it was awful. But every time you see that, that's, a, that's a, a Jezebel spirit. They'll do it in businesses. They'll do it in your Bible study. They'll do it at churches. Uh, they're infamous for that. What are you looking for? You're looking for somebody that wants authority that's not earned it. You're looking for someone that wants power that has never earned it and doesn't have the right to have that power. You're looking for someone who will stab you in the back and you can't trust and that will create a, uh, a faction with them. Okay, that's what this, this children's uh, minister did at this church he was telling me about. He amassed all these weak-willed women around him that protected him. And he's protected by a slew of weak-willed women as the scripture mentions. The same scenario happened as a Jezebel spirit. I talked to Sharam Hayden. He had the same thing happen to him when he was pastoring up there in Washington. Jezebel spirit, boom. Hit this church, almost nearly divided the church. Then I think he finally had to get out of there. But Jezebel spirit's dangerous. You gotta watch out for these people. They are not playing with a full deck, okay? Irresponsible people. Now, these are the people we like in our lives because they joke and they make fun and, and we like being around them and they're, they're fun to be with, but don't count on them to be responsible with anything. And what ends up happening is this type of individual uh, is, a, is a, uh, an adult child. 
Um, and like I said, you'll like them, and you, you can't help but not like them because they're always funny and they're having a good time and things, but they simply can't get their act together. They can't get their act together, and they're not dependable. They can't commit. They always say they're going to commit, but they don't, and they have commitment problems because they're unstable, basically. Um, you go to a detached person. A detached person is one that won't attach to you emotionally. They won't, they won't uh, empathize. They won't sympathize with you. I think we've talked about this kind of person. But they um, have a propensity to keep you at distance from them. Hard to connect to. Then you have uh, the fused person. What's a fused person? A fused person enmeshes themselves with your identity. And uh, that's not healthy either. You can have a friend do this. You can have a spouse do this. And it's very dangerous, uh, especially in a marriage, if the, the spouse is fused. What do I mean? Well, one, you have, um, like, let's say marriage. You have a marriage where each is supposed to come together and the two shall become one, right? But they, 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 they become one entity, but they maintain their separate identities, just like the Trinity does. One nature and three identities is the Trinity, right? So they, the, the, the identities are separate from each other, even though they're one unity. So that's how marriage is supposed to be. Each spouse retains their own identity, and the two become one. Okay. Fusion is when it's not the two become one. The two fuse together and the dominant identity becomes the identity for the couple. And so you have somebody back here's identity is hidden behind the front person's identity. And so you, when you refer to so-and-so, it's the front person that you're referring to because this person doesn't have an identity. Their identity is only within this person. And that's called fusion. Okay? Have you ever seen fusion? You know when you're going to see it the most? Guess when you, th- you see fusion the most? It's dangerous. Because you think, well, they're so loving. They always do things together, and it's so wonderful. No, they're fused. They're actually fused. They don't have separate identities. So how do you know? Well, you can see it sometimes because... It's always the front one you're dealing with. Always. It's always the front one. This one don't have an identity outside of this one. The left taking on one. Half the population is grabbing hold of this woke ideology without any fact or theory behind it so because joe blow says this is great everybody's latching on to it and just think that's the way it is they're not taking their own individually not questioning it they're just kind of like the germans that followed hitler and just oh it's just the yeah way. You, you'll see you'll see that a little bit you're you're, you're right it's a, it's a little bit different dynamic in the sense that the person actually wants to hide in the other person's identity it's not that they don't know who they are they want to hide in it and when they hide in it, then the person becomes the shield for them in life because really they don't want to deal with life. That's what it is. When you're independent and your own identity, you have to deal with life. You have to be responsible. You have to do things, right? So when you get married and you say, I want to cease to exist, 
and I don't want to be responsible for any decisions. I don't want to make bad decisions. And then you fuse, and then you get gobbled up in the other person's identity. And it's really, I don't want to be responsible for anything, anything at all. So when you see that, that's called fusion. The big time that you, you will see this when it hurts the other person is when the spouse dies. When the spouse dies, that spouse won't last very long. They won't. Because since they fused, parts of them will die because they fused their identity. They don't have an identity. They don't even know who they are. So their spouse dies and they got their identity. They borrowed their identity from someone else. And so now their spouse is gone in which they took an identity from. And now who are they right now? They're nobody. And when they're that late in life, they're not gonna find that identity anymore. Then they die within the same year of that spouse typically because they have no identity. It's a very scary thing. And, you know, you'll see it and you try, to, you try to counsel people through it. But, man, if they fused for 30, 40 years, um, I have, I had, I've had no success. I can just tell you that. I'm sure there's other counselors that had success. I have seen no success out of it. As much as I tell them the truth, much as I tell them you have your own identity, they're too late in the game. It's too late. And sometimes that's just the way it is. And I, I hate to say that. Uh, because you always want to have a positive outlook that people can change, and they can, but dude, if they're not wanting to, it's not going to happen. And then they, they just die without, it, uh, that, that, without that identity. There's an old saying um, in counseling, and you have to listen to it first before you understand it, because it's not, it's not derogatory, but it means something, and it's like this. People are hopeless until they want to change. Let that sink in. People are hopeless until they want to change. We're not saying they're not, they can't change, but until they get the mentality, I want to change, you're hopeless. And I get that from a counseling standpoint, because if you don't want to change, what are we doing here? You know, what, what we're spinning our wheels. You know, and, and, and that, you can see why so, someone, a counselor would throw in the word hopeless, because that's true. If you don't want to work on your issues, you are hopeless in that sense. Uh, but not, you know, not that you can't change. So anyway, <clears throat> fusion is a big deal. So when you're married, you're, you have to have your own identity. But that identity doesn't go outside the boundaries of doing everything outside the family unit. It stays within the family unit, but it, it maintains its identity. And you know, the easy way you can see this is at uh, your, your uh, kitchen table or dad's chair. So at the kitchen table, does everybody have their place at the kitchen table? Okay. Now, the, the, in the old days, they did. Um, and, and what that showed you is everybody knew their identity within the family unit. They knew where, where pecking order they were in, where dad sat, where mom sat, and everyone sits at the table, and that's where everyone sits. And what that really is is separate identities together as one family unit, but having each separate identity. That's his chair, that's her chair. When you fuse, you're sitting on the, both of you are sitting on the same chair. Does that make sense? That's kind of how, when fusion happens. The addict. Now, this is what you would tell your daughter or your son that's dating, don't marry an addict, okay? That would be the first thing out of your mouth. But unfortunately, it happens way too much. They do marry the addict. 
And obviously that would be the wrong move if you want your daughter or son to marry the best person is to avoid the addict. But unfortunately, if the person has uh, a need to be valued by what they do, it will suck them into a vortex of being attracted to an addict. Okay? And they go, well, that's crazy. Who would ever want to be attracted to an addict? Someone who wants to fix them. Someone that sees them as a project. Someone that sees them that I can fix them. Someone that says, I derive value from fixing broken projects or impossible projects. I can, I can whip them back in shape. I can whip her back in shape, whatever it is. And, and you watch me. And then they derive value. That's who marries addicts. That's who marries addicts. So behind every addict is an enabler, right? You'll find an enabler. And sometimes it's not their spouse. It's some sister, brother, uh, mom, dad, whatever. Somebody's enabling the person, right? Somebody's giving them the money. Some of them buying the, the drugs. Some of them's buying the alcohol. Some of them's doing something. Someone's enabling the whole thing. Always find the enabler. Okay, sometimes the enabler is the spouse, so what ends up happening is uh, the reason someone would marry an addict is because they have codependency issues, typically. And so you can do everything you can to warn your daughter, to warn your son, don't marry an addict, but if they have codependency issues, which must be addressed, then they will go gravitate right to that. That will be a perfect match for, for them to go to hell in that situation in their marriage. They will have a literal hell in their marriage, and they will like it. It's weird. They, you try to break away the, the codependent from the addict, and they don't want to leave. They don't want to put boundaries. They don't want to put limitations. And it doesn't matter. Uh, they, they won't do anything. I'm not, I'm not talking about divorce, but I'm talking about, like, you know, sometimes you have to physically get away from them because they're so in addictions. But they won't do it. They keep going back, going back because they're codependent. And... Um, and really, you know, a biblical term is you just want to derive a codependency is the technical term, but the biblical term is you're deriving value from the things you do, your works. You're a works-based person, basically. And so you'll have that. So typically, that was what happened. And then, as you can see, in an addict and a codependent relationship, one of them will be the parent and the addict will be the child. So there'll always be this role that gets played in the dynamic of the marriage. Now, ask yourself this. Which one are you? If you're in that kind of relationship, are you the parent? Are you the child? I hope not. I hope both of you are the parents of your children and not the parent of each other or the child of each other. You've got you to be the, the, the same as adults. Okay, so what happens in some marriages, they switch and they go into a parenting-child role. The most irresponsible will be in the child role, and they will like it, and the parenting one will like it too because that they, they gives them the control. But how long do you think they can go like this? I'll give them to their mid-40s because this is when they start breaking down. Because when you're in your 20s and your 30s, you have immense amount of energy. It's amazing because 50, I don't have any energy at any at all, right? <laughs> Caffeine doesn't even work for me anymore. I can drink 48 ounces in, on Sunday morning and it nothing happens to me. And so, you know, you, you just become this withering, no energy person. But man, in your 20s and 30s, you have enough energy to hold it all together, and keep it together. 
But you get in your mid-40s, you can't do it anymore. And so what ends up happening is, when I say, how long do you think they can go as a parent-child? About their mid-40s. And then what happens is, both of them get resentful towards the other person. The, the controller, even though they like the control, will say, I want him to be the spiritual leader. He can't because he's your child. He will never be your spiritual leader. You married him because you wanted a child and you wanted the control. Now you're mad at him because he's not the spiritual leader, but that's who you married. And he's a clown. He's a child. He's never going to grow up. You married him because of his irresponsibility, because you wanted a child and to be in control. Now you're mad. And then he says, I'm tired of being parented. She always tries to mother me. And I'm just tired of being parented. Well, buddy, you married your mother. That's who you married. That's why you married. You, you wanted mom to take care of you. And that's what you did. You went from your paternal mother to your marriage mother. And that's what you did. And then, well, what are you talking about? Well, that's what you bought. So don't try to change the game right now, unless both of you want to change it. But you wanted to be the baby in the family. Why do you resent her from being control of you? Because you, you can't even pay your bills. She's in charge. Well, I don't like it. Well, too bad. Go clean your room or something, you know. <laughs> but he's acting like a child. And you're talking to like a 45-year-old man. And it's just like, oh, my gosh, Really? Yeah, that's how it is, man. And so, anyway, the other one needs to be valued. So that's that's eleven. So anyway, I've went too long. I got we got more to talk about next time. Thanks for joining us for another lesson. We hope that this message is a blessing for you and helps you grow towards a more mature understanding of God's Word. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website at rockharborchurch.net. Until next time, remember, keep looking up for our redemption draws near.